Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be. And welcome to episode 127 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Clarice Lockery. I'm Hannah Flint. And I'm Amon Woman. This week, we check out Kenneth Branagh's latest Poirot mystery, The Mustache is Back. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's favorite time of year when Kenneth Branagh gets his mustache out. It's a haunting in Venice. We jump in the ring with Cassandro and follow the ups and downs of two siblings in Brother. Plus, we bring back our very special feature, Be Kind Rewind, as Hannah chants to lucky number seven director Paul McGuigan before we reassess the 2006 neo-noir, which I actually had never seen before. <laughs> but I don't know. What was I doing in 2006? I don't know. This <laughs> podcast was recorded during the 2023 WGA and SAG after strikes. Without the labor of the writers and actors currently on strike, the movies being covered here wouldn't exist. Uh, so w- there was a screening last night that I couldn't go to of, of a movie I guess we'll cover next week. Did you guys go to that? What, what things have you been up to? I assume you're talking about dumb money. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Paul Dano. I love it. <laughs> He's great. I was there. I did see it. I think I can say that I had a good time with it. We will obviously get into more detail on it. Well, you week. had a, you got some good merch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they gave us uh, the headband that uh, his character, Paul, Paul Dano's character, Vorin Kitty. Uh, it was given WWE. <laughs> it, was, it was very much that. Uh, yeah, I did not wear it for the for the entirety of the film. I just wore it to, to take a picture with um, at the at the start. But uh, but yeah, uh, it's a really good time. I have not gone to this yet. I'm going to it on Saturday. We're recording this on Friday. But uh, Warner Brothers have put on an exhibition called Batman Unmasked in Piccadilly, where they got all these different uh, sort of costumes and and props from the Batman movies of like the last however many years and I'm very excited to check that out tomorrow being the Batman fan that I am I think it's going to be you, a fun time you're a Batman fan <laughs> no it's never come up it's never come up but I want to reveal it here exclusively to the Fade Back podcast I'm one woman that is a Batman fan that is brand new information <laughs> <laughs> they don't have any Harley Quinn sex. I saw they had the suit from Joker, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't know there'd be non-Batman things in there." Yeah, yeah. But there's no. Har- I, mean, I don't think I there's feel any like, Harley like, Quinn stuff. What can stuff. they get? What can they get that no one gives a shit about? <laughs> Unfortunately, people do give a shit about that movie. <laughs> no hate if you like Joker, but I. Mm. Oh no! Loads of hate. <laughs> I, 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 I forward loads of hate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I had I, I had a really good time at the BFI this week. Well, I had this really weird, you know, coincidental things that kind of come together and you don't really realise until you're like, oh, wow, this is a weird connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went to the BFI and they, they're, they're doing, a, I think they're doing a, a documentary of like a BFI Blu-ray thing for Lorenza um, Mazzetti. Um, uh, she, uh, she was, she only died a couple of years ago. She's like a kind of a filmmaker, a short filmmaker, an artist and author who um, who went to like the Slade School of Film and Television uh, back in back in the day? She was one of the first did loads of short films, but she was friends with like Kafka, Franz Kafka. Wow. And I'm currently re- reading like uh, Metamorphosis and other stories. <gasps> and then I didn't cl- didn't clock that there was so it's like a documentary that was done by um, I want to say Henry K. Miller and 
Bridget Lowe and uh and they've kind of like interviewed her and she's amazing Lorenzo's like oh my god so funny so mm-hmm. witty she's got this Agnes Varda quality to her and like give a shit she fucked everyone around you know what I mean she's like talks about sex she's like shagged loads of people it's, yeah honestly mm-hmm. my kind did of she, filmmaker did she Kafka <laughs> <laughs> no there was someone I don't think she did but I don't actually know anyway. nothing about the sexual life of Kafka maybe I should read that Maybe I mean, I, I feel like if you read his book, you'd think he'd maybe be a bit frustrated. <laughs> um, anyway, maybe. so, uh, but one of the, the one of the short films that they ended up showing was The Country Doctor, which is based on this short film that I was literally reading that week. Anyway, she also did Metamorphosis, but it's lost. So they've read, you know, the archive restoration, which is really cool. So like, you know, shout out BFI, uh, Lorenza. Yeah. So that's, I hope that they find doing? it. I would like to see that. I really like the the version of the trial with anthony perkins mm. yeah movie. i find kafka a bit I, i'm reading it now like i'm reading it and i'm like some of the some of the like it took me a while to get through in the penal colony because i was like this is <laughs> this is dry <laughs> but it's all about like bureaucracy and like you know kind of like um outsiders and you know the i don't know it just feels like everything's just and he has very long sentences like I will think I do long sentences that need to have a full stop, a full stop in, and you're like a whole page. It's like, wow, this is a long train of thought. <laughs> I love anyway, it because it's a full my, thought. It's because that's yeah. how thoughts work. Because it's like, yeah, I know. Well, it's a stream of consciousness, right? Was it yeah. before, was he before James Joyce or was he like after? I don't know. Let's on Google. Well, you know. <laughs> anyway, that's that's about as literary criticism you're going to get on. I, well, Hannah, I know you have one film to recommend that we're not covering this week. I also have one that I saw that I really loved called Rotting in the Sun, which is out on Mubi this week by Sebastian Silva, who did The Maid and also, oh my God, it's with, with Michael Sarah, and I'm going to m- fuck up the title, but it's The Crystal Fairy and the Cactus or The Cactus and the Crystal Fairy, some kind of combination of those three words. Uh, and yeah, Sebastian Silva, he's a Chilean director. It's a big week for Chilean directors because El Conde is also out Chile. on Netflix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just love the way Pedro Pascal, he's like, Chile. Yes. And I mean, going to be a big week for, <laughs> for Chile next week because Strange Ray of Light is out. So it's just like a really big month for that country. Oh, and El Conde's on, um, on Netflix, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I just said. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was too busy. I was too busy here, like, in my head listening to Thinking about Pedro Pascal. So, <laughs> Jale. Understandable. Um, but yes. Movies, my favourite movie of the year. So Wait, far. I didn't say why I liked it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was me rewinding. Um, so yeah, Sebastian Silva plays himself, but as what hopefully fictionalized as a, I guess, suicidal artist who feels like like a complete alien in his kind of corner of like very hedonistic, superficial gay culture where like everybody's like an influencer. There's so many penises in this movie. It's fun. <laughs> uh, and then the film takes like a real, really insane turn about 30 minutes in. That is maybe one of the most like biggest shocks of the year in cinema for me. And wow. then the rest of the movie, I mean, I won't really describe, but it's, incredibly dark and it's really funny but then there's just there's this really touching storyline with a woman who's his housekeeper 
and it ends with the last shot is just devastating. So it's like a real mix of of everything, and I loved it. So please, please watch Running in the Sun. You know who's in it? I believe the actor who I well, I saw him. Um, I think I saw him first in Search Party. Yes, uh, and he's and he's got a really good TikTok account that I, or, or like Instagram, which he's really funny on. And he also is in Miss Marvel. And he plays a guidance counselor. Oh. Yeah, he plays the like influencer that Sebastian yeah. Silva. He's great. He's I love him. He's really funny. So yeah. um, the film, my favorite film of the year so far, has now become Fremont. I keep wanting to say Fremont, <laughs> Fremont, <laughs> um, but Fremont, which is the Babat Jalili. Uh, film. He's a British Iranian filmmaker. Well, Iranian born, British, London based. It's. I just left. Uh, I, about uh, basically, it's about an, uh, an Afghan woman who's working in a fortune cookie factory, and her kind of life is on pause as she kind of adjusts to this new life after serving as a translator in the U.S. military and getting, you know, free, getting to escape the kind of turmoil of back home. But she's dealing with loneliness, insomnia, um, and what I love about it, it's kind of like a. It's like a cross, but it's got this like real tone. It's like Napoleon Dynamite meets Yorgos Lanthimos, sort of very dry, deadpan. Like the people around her, quite sort of like not eccentric, but quite, I don't know, the mundanity of her life kind of heightened by these very specific individuals. And it's just so beautiful, so beautifully shot, so poignant. Like every little bit of piece of dialogue is so intentional and not superfluous. And it has one of, like, the most heart-squelching, like, life-affirming endings mm-hmm. <laughs> I've seen in so long. And as Clarice pointed out to me, and I already knew when she was like, you won't believe who's in it. I was like, is it Carmi? Is it my Jeremy Adam White? <laughs> so, yeah, he <laughs> pops up. And, like, honestly, I just get lost in his eyes. He's so <laughs> There's a couple anyway. of, like, fun cameos in that movie that I did not... Yeah. coming. I, mean, I don't know if I want to say, but there's a director that turns up for one scene and I was like, it was a real like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing here? Honestly, it, and it also I should shout out the, the writer of it um, because I feel like it's a female-led story and she's really great. Uh, and I feel like it's good because it probably had an influence of a, a woman writer, well, a writer who understands what it is to be a woman. <laughs> uh, Carolina Cavalli, and I also want to shout out Anita Wali, uh, Wali Zada, who is, plays Donya, the lead character, who's just fucking beautiful. Um, she's just, yeah, it's so good. So anyway, we're not reviewing it, but please uh, screen it. <laughs> While we're doing shout-outs, I would like to shout out one Hayden Christensen, um, who... I haven't watched this episode. <laughs> Me neither. But I know that he's in it. Okay. Okay. Because then was like, and that's all I want to say. He's wearing wearing an outfit. He kills everybody. No, I'm joking. Um, but it was good to see. I mean, I mean, that's not really a spoiler. (laughs) Uh, it was good to see him back on screen in the Star Wars, and we will be discussing Ahsoka, maybe in the future episode of Fate of Black. Liar. He was already back in a Star Wars, though. I don't really. Understand. I know it was just good to see him back I really again. Like Hayden Christensen. But you can't. It's like you can't come back three times. Away. It's not like a sitcom. Everyone's clapping every single time Hayden Christensen does that. Can I He's just back. Say, We're happy. It's cool. 
I actually, it's not cool. It's kind of frustrating now. I'm like, I feel like everyone needs to just every single writer in the Star Wars writers room, whatever, they need to get the fuck over <laughs> the Skywalkers. I'm so bored of them popping up every two minutes. I think it it's makes... just like lazy for me. It. I don't think it does. I think you could have done it without, and I just feel like it literally, I mean, I just think it's lazy writing personally. If you can't tell this story without a sky, because it's not even like, actually Mark Miller made a really good point the other day. I, I was like, we don't talk about Ahsoka, but we're doing it now because I have something to say. <laughs> Therefore, we will talk about this. No, but Mark Miller, the comic writer, said like, Star Wars isn't an extended universe. It's like the Sopranos. It's like everything's about the Skywalker fans. Every time it goes away, it's always coming back to the Skywalker. It just feels like it it doesn't feel as expansive. Every time they bring the Skywalkers in, it just feels small. It just makes the world smaller. Personally, that's how I see it. And I agree with Mark when he said that. Well, I will say, I, I do agree with you. But I Then sometimes I contradict myself and I go, well, it's actually quite... If you look at the roots of what Star Wars is, it's in a lot of like legends and classical storytelling and every classical epic is like everybody's fucking related to each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I sort of, I think I, I, I'm like 60% there where I, I can sort of sympathize with and I like the, the traditional aspect of having loads of familial links, but I, I doesn't always have to be Skywalker and I think we can drift away from, specific people returning and maybe expand the idea of how these people in the universe are linked. Because also Ahsoka like was in so many episodes of obviously Star Wars Rebels and Clone Wars. You could there could have been other people that she could have or even you know the her mother you know what I mean like even that there was that specific visions episode. Was it a bit or Jedi Tales or stories? Tales of the Jedi. Um, Yeah, there's you know there's a whole thing. I think it made sense within the context of Ahsoka, given how much Anakin had a role in her life and her character journey up to this point, given what she has yet to fully reckon with, given what was going on or what is going on at this particular time in the episode. And again, I'm trying to not spoil it for you here, but I feel like if you were going to do an Anakin appearance in Ahsoka, this was the right time, this is the right episode for that. Um, I'm very intrigued to talk to you guys after you've actually watched the thing um, so we can sort of analyse how, how, how you feel about it then. But for me, even though note. even though I have some issues with um, some of how it played out, I thought it was a, I thought it was a, overall a solid appearance from Anakin and I, and I enjoyed it. Just on Force Ghost, okay, yeah. can I just ask a quick question? Yeah. Like, why is it everyone looks like they did when they died or whatever, except for Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> because, wasn't it Anakin? Well, that's the whole thing. Anakin. Oh, it Darth Vader isn't Anakin. Darth Vader. Oh. I know that that's what, what Dave Because they got rid of, <laughs> didn't they originally get rid of the original, didn't they yes. originally in the thingy and then they replaced him? That, I didn't like that. That I don't think had much creative justification, but I can understand them making the argument that if Anakin is coming back, it'll be yes. Hayden Christensen. Well, no, I get it, but it's also bullshit. Um, They're lucky. Bullshit, They're bullshit, lucky bullshit. that they can argue that because we yeah. know the real reason. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, I, I'm just thinking about, like, I'm very... This is why I'm looking forward to the Acolyte because this is, like, 100 years before. Yeah. But I'm like, 
who the fuck's is Yoda gonna show up? It's like someone's gonna come in there, and oh then God, I'm like, baby even Yoda. James, could you? No, but literally, we'd be. Oh my God, literally, baby Yoda. Imagine baby Yoda. <laughs> isn't Yoda like four hundred years old? Toby, so like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how the timeline. Works. So maybe it's like teen Yoda. Maybe it's like a group version of Yoda. You know, like a group teen is like, get off your, get off that console. <laughs> Um, but also, what's the James Mangold one that's set like a thousand years in the past? They can't put a Skywalker in that, can they? No. They can't. Mm. They literally can't. No. Please tell me. Please tell me. <laughs> no, I don't think they can. Um, I don't Isn't think James... Isn't that Season I... 2? And Tony Gilroy's like, fuck you. I'm not going to put any of your shit in it. <laughs> See, that's why I like that's Tony Gilroy. Mean. <laughs> that's, why that's why Andor was great. There was like none of that nonsense. Anyway. Yeah, we'll like we'll maybe get K two SO if we're lucky because canonically he has to appear at some point. <laughs> but that's it. It's all you can. And also, can we also talk about like the the elephant in the room? Why is Star Wars so homophobic that they will not ha- let us have a do- like live action Doctor Afra? It's pure homophobia. <laughs> that's what I have to conclude. It is getting kind of crazy because ev- they're running out of characters and it's like they brought the Black Chrysanthemum because he's in the Dr. Afra comics, right? Yeah, well, Darth Vader and then they did the Dr. Afra spinoff. So where is um, she? Well, yeah, where the fuck is she? Because if, cause if Phoebe Waller-Bridge in Indiana Jones and A Dial of Destiny is the closest thing we're going to get to Dr. Afra, then I will, I, I'm going to melt my lightsabers. <laughs> There are many more Star Wars stories to be told, and I'm hopeful that Dr. Aphra will show up. I think it's... it's Maybe maybe we shouldn't leap to homophobia just yet, is what I'm saying. All right. How, I, are you on, like, Disney's <laughs> oh, Hairball or gosh. something? Jesus. I feel like... And when you say that, it's like, are you shilling for I'm not, Lucas I'm not. Right now? I'm, I'm just... I don't know He's what... He's like, the- I want to host the Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> I want to host some Disney Q&A, so I can't call them homophobic. <laughs> <laughs> Protect the bag, Hannah. I keep telling you. Um, but no, that's, that's not what's not Secure what the bag. S- secure the bag. Secure the bag, then protect it. Throw <laughs> your life. Jump jump on it like you're, you're a skinny Steve Rogers. <laughs> jump in on a fake grenade. <laughs> yes, that was the full quote. Thank you. Um no, I just, I, I don't think that, I, I, I'm really hopeful that homophobia is not what it is. And I'm also hopeful that we do get Dr. Afro on screen so that I could be sat next to you for that incredible moment because I, I just, I don't, I, I, I won't be watching the screen. I'll be watching you in that moment, Hannah. Uh, having all your dreams, having all your dreams fulfilled. It's gonna, it'll, it'll be, it'll be memorable, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see if any dreams come true when we talk about our first movie of the week because the mustache man is back. <laughs> <laughs> it's Poirot time. Everyone who ever lived here falls victim to some tragedy. Like her daughter a year ago. My daughter was my whole life. To hear her voice again, I would give all I have. If someone wants to be heard, we are here. 
We don't need no exorcism. We don't need no thought control. No dark sarcasm in the palazzo. Bro, leave them kids alone. I think that's a. I think that I'm so proud of that. So true. Every week, okay. I literally like. It's like. It's like, no one has more confidence in myself in picking songs than me. <laughs> like, I just love it. It's like my favorite, every time I do this script, it's my favorite thing to do. Set in eerie post-World War II, Venice on All Hallows' Eve, uh, a terrifying mystery featuring the return of the celebrated sleuth Hercule Poirot occurs. Now retired and living in a self-imposed exile in the world's most glamorous city, Poirot reluctantly attends a seance at a decaying haunted Palazzo. When one of the guests is murdered, the detective is thrust into a sinister world. Into a sinister world of shadows and secrets. Co-produced and directed by Kenneth Branagh from a screenplay by Michael Green, based on the 1969 novel Halloween Party by Agatha by Agatha Christie, with Branagh, of course, portraying the Belgian detective. Once again, the ensemble cast includes Kyle Allen, Camille Cotin, Jamie Dornan, Tina Fey, Jude Hill. Ali Khan, Emma Laird, Kelly Riley, Ricardo Scamarcio, and Michelle Yeoh are queen and ruler. So, um, I mean, who's going to say it? Who's going to do it first? I need someone to do it. Enough movie to fill the mile. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Okay. There it is. Um, I suppose my first... So I didn't watch um, Death of the Nile, but I did see uh, Murder on the Orient Express. I wonder if... Uh, but I also knew the plot of Murder on the Orient Express. And one of the reasons I didn't like Death of the Nile is because I've also seen the Peter Ustinov version, which is sick, so good. Peter Ustinov is, like, next level. I think he's my favourite pro. Sorry. Um, David Suchet, is that his name? Apologies. Uh, so I suppose, how did, uh, now we're on our third one, you both have seen Death of the Nile mm-hmm. and obviously Made on Orange Express. Um, like, wh- wh- where does this depart and have its own kind of like feel? Because I think with like Knives Out and Glass Onion, they had obviously the same kind of accent, but like definitely different feel, vibe, look. So was there anything in particular that stood out for you that may have like been better or worse than previous uh, films we've seen from Branner. Uh, Amon? Um, yes. I feel like the thing that distinguishes this entry compared to the previous two, and indeed other sort of recent murder mysteries we've seen, is the spooky element to this. Um, the haunting element, if you will. Um, and I feel like the cool, the cool thing about this is that yes, it gives us everything you want from a whodunit. Although, if we're going by Captain Holt's term from Brooklyn Nine Nine, a who has done this is what we should call it. Mm. Um, <laughs> but um, wait, no, because who done? It's like if you're who done it. There's that. I object. There's that great line in Brooklyn Nine Nine. The phrase who done it is a grammatical abomination. Please use the proper term. Uh, who has done this? It's a fantastic That one. feels very like anti, <laughs> like Cockney slang. It's like, that's how. Like, Take it up yeah. with Captain Hawk, no, Clarice. No, but you also have to remember there's a massive departure from what the f- word's origin to what it is now. No one's been, no one says who done it. But then also, 
actually, that's a good point you made, Clarice, because he would he's the type of person who would know the origin of that word. Mm. <laughs> As we were saying, this is a review of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. No, I'm joking. Um, but I, I feel like this gives you everything that you'd expect from a film like this, while also throwing in that spooky element, which jazzes things up a little bit. And I really, really enjoyed that. It also meant that the Dutch angle, which Kenneth Bernard is very, very, very fond of, actually made a little bit more sense and it felt more effective because it was used to showcase the spooky element of the setting. And this is a very atmospheric film and stuff like that coming through just heightened that. So I had a good time with this. Mm. Uh, as our resident horror girl, uh, Clarice, mm. were those element, did those elements work for you better than you? And also, again, better or worse than Death on the Nile? Death on the Nile. Better. Oh. This is better. my favourite of the three. Mm. Mine too. Because Kenneth Branagh, just go work for Blumhouse. I don't <laughs> Oh, that's a good idea, you know. This is the thing with Kenneth Branagh. Like, I think outside of his... Like, he obviously has his Shakespeare adaptations, which we can kind of put to the side. And But then you have every other movie he makes where it's like, Dutch angle, Dutch angle. <laughs> the camera's spinning around. It's three... Like, it just the most insane approach to camera work, which sort of makes sense for someone from a theatrical background like I, I see where it's coming from but it doesn't really make sense when it's like Belfast <laughs> <laughs> and it's meant to be a very grounded drama about you know growing up during the troubles so what's so nice about Haunting in Venice is that suddenly everything that Kenneth Branagh usually does makes sense and you're like Oh, yeah, because you have Dutch angles in a horror movie and you do do kind of crazy camera work in a horror movie because it's about kind of heightening a situation and how can we make this seem so real when maybe what's happening is real. So I just came out of this movie being like, Kenneth, just switch switch lanes dude <laughs> just i mean because i maybe i i still want him to make the Poirot movies but i think as a sideline he should just start making horror because his version of frankenstein look was it good mm. <laughs> is it fun to watch absolutely so i rest my case case dismissed <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, that means you win, right? You rest your case, so you win. What would you? Oh, would you am I being accused, or am I? Jacuzzi, Jacuzzi, Jacuzzi. Kenneth Branagh being good at horror. <laughs> well, I've always, lo- I always stand by that. I think Thor is one of the best Marvels. One hundred percent. It's still the best Thor movie. But yeah, I... actually, I, I mean, I, yeah, I do think it is, but I think it also helps by the fact that it's like the kind of introduction to it. But mm. again, what you were saying about the theatricality of it, the Shakespeare of it, he mm. really knows how to do that well. And that kind of like the melodrama as well, he's very good at. But I can I ask the yeah. Dutch, because there's a lot of Dutch angles yeah. in Thor. Do they, did they need to be there? Because I would argue no. There's a, they doesn't make angles. any contextual. <laughs> but it makes no thematical, no. atmospheric, mood, contextual sense for the camera just being like, whoa. Maybe he's the way it looks. There's a Maybe he's c- bozzard and he actually thinks it's straight. 
<laughs> can you imagine? Not intentionally, not actually intentionally doing it. <laughs> there, there are a couple of Dutch angles in Thor in which it does make narrative sense to why it's deployed it, but there's 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 also a few which which just doesn't make sense. It's just Kenneth being Kenneth. Um, but, yeah. but they do here. That's what I'm yeah. like. There wasn't a single Dutch angle where I was like, "That's weird." Yeah, I was like, "Oh, you would, mm. you would use it here because mm-hmm. it's spooky." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, well, I really, yeah, I think I really like the, the way it leans into the horror of it. Also, again, I didn't know that. I don't know the who, what the story was. So it's kind of sometimes the hard thing about adaptation is if you've already read it or know what's going on. But apparently, this is actually quite a loose adaptation of that. It's really different. Totally different story. Um, um, also, I just feel like the direction was really sharp in this. I want to talk about a bit and then getting the performance out of the actors. I mean, you know, it's so funny looking at Michelle Yeoh in this, and I just feel like there's one scene where it's just the camera's just mm, on her, yeah, <laughs> and it's just wow, the face and her face is doing the work. Mm. I think she was just fantastic in it. And really understood the role that she was playing, and it was also just like again giving her a chance to do something, show her show her actual ability. Mm-hmm. I think you can really see that Branner is an actor's director, of course, like most actors, most direct directors who are actors. So I'd love to talk a little bit about the performance. Also, I like that the young kid. I think his name's Jude Hill. Yeah, the Jude Hill kid. I love that he wasn't like the like the kind of typical annoying <laughs> bratty British kid, mm-hmm. English schoolboy thing. I quite enjoyed him as well. So was there anything about the performances that stuck out for you? You're completely right about Michelle Yeoh. I just loved seeing her chew the scenery uh, in this movie. And I feel like after everything I've wrote all at once, people, not that they should have needed it, but it felt like more people in Hollywood have woken up or woken up to the fact that Michelle Yeoh can do a variety of stuff. And it feels like more of that sort of thing is finding its way to her, which I absolutely love. I think aside from Michelle Yeoh and Kenneth himself, who's also having a grand time with the moustache, and there's a few lines that he delivers as Poirot that did make me giggle. I, I love it when not only is the smartest guy in the room doing his smart guy thing everywhere, but this is also a film about him sort of finding his purpose again and getting back in the game. And I love that side of side of his arc. Um I think Tina Fey is a perfect fit for this world. Um and the way that she was delivering dialogue, the back and forth that she had with Poirot, I really enjoyed that performance as well. Hmm. I I was not crazy about well, I don't know, the performances in this were really interesting. I'm gonna yeah. put Michelle Yeo aside <laughs> <laughs> because what struck me is that the previous two movies were very centered around like a-listers uh i mean the first one had michelle it was a ridiculous cast willem devote ridiculous Mm. cast list the second one was still like gal gadot with pretty huge stars in it and the i think those movies shaped themselves around the the charisma of of a movie star Mm -hmm. and here like michelle yo absolutely the second she walks on the screen it's like i don't give a shit about anybody else in this (laughs) movie right now (laughs) But I would say the other actors in this, um, I thought Camille Cotin was great, mm-hmm. but he felt quite like dinner theatre. Like a lot of the performances were very like directed out to the camera <laughs> to be like, oh no, I'm I'm so upset. Huh? And I, Jamie Dornan, I thought his performance was a bit strange and not like he's done in other things where he's playing a 
doctor with PTSD, but it's mm. like, it's very, it's a lot. And he, I'm not and entirely convinced that Jamie Dornan is, I'm not entirely convinced that I think Jamie Dornan is actually a great actor. Oh, very good. He has done little to convince me of, I know everyone raved about him in Bob, Bob. I, quite, I liked him in Belfast. I wasn't like uh, But he away. doesn't blow me doesn't he's not really blown away but I wonder if that dinner theater style was in again intentional because you know of course obviously Agatha Christie was adapted to the stage that that sort of time that British theater called like the sort of like drawing room draw like you know that sort of sensibility that I think suited the kind of melodrama of horror of this world so I wonder if that was mm. the intentional part because I didn't mind I that. think I you're right like that it does it does suit the tone but I, yeah. it did feel different from the performances in the other movies because i thought was it emma mackey in the last one but she you didn't like the other movie right killed... <laughs> no but emma mackey like killed it <laughs> yes she did just unfortunately yeah, it wasn't really an emma mackey performance in this yeah. but there's a there's a bit in it with michelle i'm sorry i'm gonna go back to michelle yeah <laughs> but i keep thinking about this like thing with Sarah, and it's like there's something i find really just mesmerizing when you have someone, an actor, who is, like, saying something really intensely and the, they're crying, but they're not, like, making the cry face. They're just saying things and, like, the emotion's coming out. And it's, like, that, for me, is always, like, the most, like, impressive show of emotion where it's kind of, like, you know, not every type of crying comes from a place of, like, oh, I'm so upset. Sometimes, actually, the strength and strong will of, like, tears falling because you've so overpowered by emotion in the situation mm. i just thought that was just excellent and well excellent scene between michelle yo and kenneth brenner in that moment um i'd love to talk a little bit more about like i suppose the whodunit element of it i mean i didn't guess it i did guess part of it but how do you think that kind of worked and also the kind of element that it was um getting in with the kind of mystical supernatural of it or and even that kind of question hanging over. And again, it's so funny because of what all these horror supernatural things about grief, death, blah, 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 <laughs> you know, all that type of stuff. Responsibility. How did you how did you enjoy the kind of pacing of this sort of mystery and how it played out? I mean, Amon, did you get it before the end? No, I got an element of it fairly early on. I think maybe yeah. earlier in the film, I was briefly asking the question in terms of how did they pull that off is there really a mystical thing going on but i was quickly disabused of that i didn't sort of know the particulars um of how everything plays out and that's always one of my favorite scenes in this when the smart guy has figured it out it's like okay all of you in the room this is this is what i know this is how i know it bing bang boom i, I always love scenes like that and i think I, I enjoyed seeing that play out um, so yeah, for the most part, I was taken along for the ride, and that's 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 what you want from a film like this. Great. Anything else people want to add? Uh, the score by Hilda Goodnotter, who of course won the Oscar for Joker, that film we all love a few years back. Uh, it's not one that I can see myself listening to on its lonesome much, but it works very well for the story um, and for the horror-oriented take, the atonal rhythms. Uh, of the score, which Hilda has always been very good at. So I, I enjoyed it in the movie. Again, I don't see myself listening to it much on its own. So. I really enjoyed the costumes by Sarah Mee Sheldon, the suit that they gave Michelle Yeoh, which is sort mm. of like a um, very mm. knit waist blazer jacket, quite a little bit Christian Dior. Uh, she looked so good. <laughs> 
my god (laughs) just looked incredible in that outfit um so shout out to sammy sheldon great well it's available in cinemas now before it heads to disney plus uh let's do our screen stream or skip verdicts clarice i yeah i'd say screen i think I just, these movies aren't that great, but I also just really enjoy them. (laughs) (laughs) And I want a million of them. Just keep making them, Kenneth Branagh. Makes me happy whenever there's a new Poirot movie. You heard it here first. Clarice wants more Dutch angles. That's more Dutch angles. Um, Pass the Dutch angles on her left hand side. Pass the Dutch angles on her left hand side. Uh, It's a screen from me. Not quite on the higher end of Murder Mysteries, which I put the knives out uh, films in currently, but still a whole bunch of fun. I'm going to say stream okay. just because I feel like and I'm going to do a classic Clarice thing because I imagine this is going to be on Disney Plus pretty much around Halloween mm. um, or something. But also, there are just too many good films out this week that I think <laughs> you should see in the screen. I'll see on the big screen instead, so I don't want to... Uh, I definitely don't think you need to see this on the big screen, but I think you should watch it for a bit of fun. From one uh, outstanding costume in Venice to some dazzling costumes in El Paso, this is Cassandra. Hey, Papa, introduce me to Lucha Libre. Took me to a few matches. You don't see him no more? I've been doing real fights since a couple of years ago. You know what cast is around? They don't see nothing else. You ever thought about being an exotico? They don't let exoticos win. I want to flip it. Mi voz puede volar, puede atravesar. Things are going to be a little different tonight. This guy right here is an exotico. Stop wasting my time. Toma forma de Así es mi Es de mi corazón I'm pushing things. The other wrestlers think you're getting too big. Tienes que cuidarte. Makes me that much stronger, makes me work a little bit harder, makes me that much wiser, so thanks for making me a fighter. Oh, Christina. It's like she's here. No, I'm sorry. Um, in the early 1980s, gay wrestler Saul Amandares lives in El Paso, Texas, and regularly crosses the border to see Dad Juarez in Mexico to participate in Lucha Libre wrestling matches. He wrestles as El Topo until he meets a new trainer, Sabrina, who suggests he should compete as an exotico, leading to his new identity and increasing success as Cassandro, hence the title. This is directed by Roger Ross Williams in his narrative directorial debut from a screenplay by Ross Williams and David Teague. It stars Gail Garcia Bernal, Roberta Colindres, Perla de la Rosa, Joaquin Cosillo, Raul Castillo, a heel del santo and bad bunny all right Come on. <laughs> yes i finally learned some pronunciations it's only taking me 120 or so episodes um 
Where to start with Cassandro? The lead character, uh, Saul Armanderas, his journey I found to be riveting pretty much all the way through. Let's talk about his wrestling journey before we get into his more intimate life. What did you make of that transformation that he goes through and who helps him out with that and how it ultimately uh, ends up? Uh, Because as somebody who watches wrestling from time to time, I had a good time with this. Uh, Clarice? Yeah, I guess I... I guess I knew as much about uh, Lucha Libre as I did uh, like American WWE. Uh, I was kind of vaguely aware of, of how it works and the identities that the Lucha Libre wrestlers have. Um, I didn't know that much about Exoticos though, and I found that aspect of the story really, really interesting because because they have this in kind of WWE, right? There's like the heroes and the, the yeah. villains and there's like Con- kind of a bit of a homophobic thing where it's like the exotica is sort of an effeminate character right yeah um and and so sal initially resists he doesn't want to be the exotica because it's basically playing into uh, the stereotype and sort of exposing himself to to bigotry and harm uh but then he d- actually does end up becoming the Exotico, and it's sort of him about like reclaiming and transforming mm-hmm. what that means and the stereotype. And I found that aspect of the story so interesting and and heartbreaking. And you just see him in the ring, and there's just people like the audience are just throwing slurs at him, mm-hmm. and and yet he's still like, I guess, cause he sees the destination that's far off. It's like, if I keep going, I can change this. I can transform what this means to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made me really think about how, I guess, susceptible people are to narrative because narratives, because the people in the audience boo the Exotico because that's what they're told to do. Right. The Exotico mm. comes on as the villain. They're put up against the, the sort of hero, wrestler the more famous one and the whole point is that we watch the hero defeat the villain and everyone goes yay mm-hmm. and nobody in that audience is questioning what they're cheering for it, it there's this sort of like pack mentality to it so i've just found i found all of that part of it so so interesting in otherwise i would say it's kind of a fairly standard biopic like the whole structure is very like yeah there's a thing that happens three quarters through that's like the thing that he has to overcome and then there's like you know mm-hmm. but that that narrative was really different and yeah. made it really worth watching for me yeah. for me what I found really um why I suppose differs from what I consider normal like a conventional sports biopic is I suppose because of like the LGBTQ element of it and how what I loved is how the journey he goes on in the ring is also his journey of self-actualization outside of it. Mm-hmm. The more that he embraces the Cassandro persona that he's created, that is influenced by these women around him mm-hmm. from his mother, his codependent mother, like the Sabrina, the kind of new coach who's like becomes a sister to her, to him. And like, not the, again, that's not your typical, how often do you get a female kind of coach of like in these situations, right? Mm-hmm. I think for me, seeing that and how that makes this person so much more secure an identity to live openly as they are mm. in a culture that still 
is so casually homophobic um, and also kind of very casually, but also like, you know, um, violently in some cases. Though what I appreciate about this film is that it's not, it's not the typical kind of gay story where it's steeped in tragedy. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, no one really like, no, like everything that, being being gay is so integral to this story, but like having to experience tragedy as a for being gay is so frustrating, which I see so often. And don't get me wrong, that story is valuable and relevant. But I often, you know, when you talk about, you know, we talk about like black film and like so many black creators want to have black joy mm-hmm. as a as a you know an, an an Arab woman of a woman of Arab descent. I'm sick and tired of seeing storylines where it's. The only time you see them is like terrorism, right? Mm-hmm. You want to have happiness and joy. And of course, there's a tragic element of this, which I think is really quite beautiful. It's also not contingent. Like this film wasn't contingent. didn't get made to be contingent on having some sort of gay related death or something like that, which I get so frustrated about, which might, you know, that's my thought. And so if, if for me, it felt really refreshing. And also I just love that he's basically the Liberace of Lucha Libra. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think... To get into the performance a little bit, what I love about um, Soul's journey as somebody who's very comfortable in his gay identity and finds a shield from all the insults in the Cassandra persona, it never falls into cliche. He heightens the playfulness and he gets to the more confident, but it never falls into that cliche gaze, the film that we could easily, a lesser performer could have given. I think... Gail Garcia Bernal is absolutely sensational in this. What did you make of his performance, Clarice? I loved it. <laughs> I love Gail Garcia Bernal. And I feel like this was a really good, um, this really played to his strengths mm-hmm. because he has, the, like, he's so good at playing dreamers in every single variety, like shape or form, they come different uh, paths uh, and lives. There's something, I don't know, he has this charisma that's very, like, there's an energy to him. And I feel like when one of his characters says, vocalizes something, like, you just believe it immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, yes, so I believe sincere. you. Mm-hmm. So yeah. sincere. So sincere. Yeah, sincerity and and something that's sort of, like, Ernest looking as well. to the, But also, like, looking to the horizon. He's. I feel like every single character he plays is always looking forward. He's like a glasses-half-full kind of char- characters he plays. Like, do you ever see mm. Mozart in the jungle? No. He plays, no. A, like a, he plays a, a, a conductor in that, and so much about his character in that reminded me of this. Mm. Just because of that kind of, like, he's kind of like a... Like a like a like a puppy dog. Like he just wants to like love and share love and be out there. And he just doesn't seem like he would has a bad bone in his body. You know what I mean? And he, he just gives out positive vibes. He's just like a bundle of pure joy. Mm-hmm. But I love the fact that there is actually definitely still elements of like melancholy that plays on him, weighs down on him, which is obviously everyone. He can't possibly be happy all the time. And I think those bits are really handled. I, I think he's yeah. yeah. Everything you said, Clarice. <laughs> I think yeah. he's so it's one of those things, though. Do you not thing, think there's slightly concerned that having? I don't know. I think he's. I, I do believe. I believe he. I, I think he's straight. But again, you just don't know with actors. I mean, mm. some of these actors say they're straight, but who knows? Oh, about but, whether he should play this character. I um, mean, he's a producer in the film, and I don't know. Again, it's one of those yeah. things. Would it have got made if it didn't have? It's like well, because you don't want to say you as an actor can't play because, as we said, we don't. We don't really know what Gail Garcia Bernal's life is i don't know him um but yeah i do think 
you know, on on the wider scale of things, especially when it's real life, you know, uh, actors playing real life people and real stories about individuals that have. Um, I mean, this entire story kind of centers around also what Cassandra meant to other uh, gay teenagers in Mexico, in El Paso. So I think there's this idea of um, being a role model that, sure, if you had, you know, an openly gay actor playing the role, I think would have, like, added a little bit um, more of a weight to it, I guess. But I think that's a tricky thing. It's really hard to say on an individual basis, like, this actor shouldn't have played this role, blah, blah, blah. But no, I think no, on no. the wider landscape, it's always, yeah, especially when it's it's biopics, it's mm. like, it's always something to be conscious about. I do have to say, though, you know, who, whoever played Glenn, is it Glenn in Theatre Camp? Yeah. Yes. He would be a good, because he could have done this role, I feel. <laughs> yes. Mm. That's very true. I can see it. I can absolutely see it. Um, Final two things for me to say is that I really loved all the stuff with Saul and his father in this. And the only thing that really didn't work for me was that sort of side plot with Bad Bunny. I don't think that's a plot. That's that's an arc that really goes anywhere. And it feels like if you remove that from this film, nothing much changes. Um, So, yeah. No, I think it was the element of... I, I I do think it works in the sense of the wanting romantic interest and pleasure and trying to seek it in places that maybe you know you're not going to get. So I think it did have a point. Mm. Personally, I do think it kind of worked. I mean, it, yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about Bad Money to know why he was in this movie, but I, I thought... guess he's is he's, he Puerto Rican. He's he's huge, I think, in in Mexico. Um, I know no, he's, he's very the famous Latin American, yeah, Latin musician. Latin. Yeah, I know he's a very famous he's also musician. Dating Kendall Gen- Jenner, right? That I did not know. I know. <laughs> yeah, but I like I don't I don't know if there's like a specific reason why he's in this specific movie. And he's been in a couple of other things, right? Yeah, he was in um, what's that one with the train? Bullet train. Yeah. Bullet what's train, that one yeah. with the train? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think, like I don't think I don't think as a musician turned actor, I thought he was alright. He wasn't a dis- an overly distracting presence. I did I believe did. that he was that guy and not constantly bad money. Mm. <laughs> And also, I was like, oh, I get it now. I get why people think he's, like, hot. There was something about him in this. It was quite very, very yeah, cute. Yeah, he's a good-looking like, guy. I like, I like the curls. I like the curls. There you have it. Uh, <laughs> it's time to go to our screen stream or skip this recommendation. This is what people come my, for our scintillating <laughs> objectification <laughs> of musicians trying to break into acting. I mean, you guys are all about that. I would never... Uh, stoop oh, to such come levels. On. Come on, Gugu Ambassador Raw's like president of the fan club. <laughs> you even you, you even have you call it your harem oh, of like of women. I don't call it that. You call it that. Thank you. Anna. I have never called you it. You call it that all the time. I call it that because that's what you call oh. it. I would never, I would never be uh, reduce these wonderful people to being members of a harem. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, it's time for us. I love that I said that now and you're going to go find back and you're going to find this. <laughs> you're <kidding>. you're <laughs> damn right I am. <laughs> Yahoo! <laughs> uh, Squeeze, stream or skip? Cassandra, Clarice. Um, oh, is this in cinemas? I thought it was just on Prime. Um, this changes everything. <laughs> Does it go out for a week at least in Prime? Doesn't it go Prime and then... then I think down? it goes theatrical oh. and then... 
week okay. of fun. I would say screen. I would also say screen. What would Hannah Flint say? Screen. Cool. I'm really intrigued as to what song you guys would come out with too for a wrestling or boxing match. Uh, but maybe that's a discussion for another day. Um, Cassa- oh, wait. Now we're going to have to think. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> maybe to maybe you could tell us at the end of this pod, after you've had a think. Okay. Um, we're going from El Paso to Scarborough for our next and final film, Brother. You watch me. Follow my every move. I'm Aisha. I know your brother, Francis. Everyone knows him. Where are you going? Just gonna meet some friends. I don't want you running the street with no hooligans. You hear me, Francis? Take your brother with you. Make anybody disrespect you. Michael, you still can't accept it. It's been ten years. F R E N. C-I-S. Francis. Mother, mother, mother. There's far too many of you crying. crying. Okay. Oh, brother, brother, brother. brother. There's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love in here today. Pick up signs. Is it pick up signs? Well, I, don't, I said pick up signs. What is it? I, I, I don't know the rest of the lyrics. Don't punish me. <laughs> With brutality. brutality. Talk you know to why me. I know this song well? So it was on Cindy Lauper's uh, 12 Deadly Sins album. <laughs> oh, is it Cindy Lauper? No, um, it's Marvin Gaye. Yeah. Marvin Gaye. Yeah. Oh. I'm so sorry. Trouble Man soundtrack. Okay. Call, back, call back to the start of the show. <laughs> <laughs> This is Brother. The film centres on the relationship between Francis and Michael, two black Canadian brothers growing up in the Scarborough district of Toronto, Ontario, in the early 1990s. Written, produced and directed by Clement Virgo, it's an adaptation of David Cheriandi's award-winning novel of the same name. The film stars Aaron Pierre as Francis and Lamar Johnson as Michael, with supporting cast members including Kiana Madeira, Marsha Stephanie Blake, Lovell Adams-Gray, Morris Deanwind and Dwayne Murphy. Uh, I, oh God, this, this movie was really beautifully shot. Um, and I kind of want to jump in straight to the thing that really struck, just really hit me hard, which was just the, the pacing, because you have this, it is about the relationship to the, between the two brothers and it's leaping across years and, and decades. And it's centered around something happened to Francis. That's sort of, I guess, the mystery of the film and you're you're seeing Francis as he was younger when he was when they were both children when they were teenagers young adults and sort of after this 
disappearance of Francis and the after effects of grief. Um, and you're sort of, I guess, drawn to this inevitable revelation. And I just found it like heart wrenching. I mean, Amon, could you talk a bit just about the structure of the film and the pacing and this idea of memory? Yeah, so it's three different timelines. Uh, the first one is Francis and his brother Michael. Um, then we at times leap 10 years ahead, uh, to see, uh, Michael with his mother, who plays a sort of a big part in all three timelines. Uh, Francis isn't there. We don't quite know what has transpired until fairly late on in the film. And then we also go, and then we also go sort of further uh, to the past, like 20 years, I think, uh, before, uh, all of this has happened to see young Francis and young Michael together. Um, I think the performances are uniformly great, but I think as, as good as both Aaron Pierre and Lamar Johnson are as the two brothers of this, it might be, um, Marsha Stephanie Blake as the mother who trumps both of them because she has to give us three different versions of Ruth, the mother character, and the amount of change that she goes through to track that character across three time periods and have each one feel distinct as she does. It's a really sensational performance. Um, and I thought it was paced absolutely beautifully. Um, you really feel the emotion and, as you said, plus the visuals coming through at each point. And then when you supplement that with the score by Toda Kobakov, which is just spellbinding, mm. um, one of the best scores I've heard in a minute, um, it really enhances the entire thing. So, yeah, I, I deeply felt this movie. Um, also, as somebody who has three older brothers, does a lot of relatable behavior. Um, and that, that, that I think, you know, put it, it 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 gave me another level of appreciation for the film just in terms of my own life experience because i was like yeah i used to i recognize myself in michael and i recognize myself in francis at various points so it's cool i guess to to center maybe specifically on francis and i for me just this constant like the structure of the movie is sort of the scenes are sort of randomly put together. There's not massively a through line from scene to scene, but emotionally it makes sense. So it's like very beautifully ordered and you have this, like Francis is such a gigantic force in the movie because mm. he's like, I guess like, like an idealized black masculinity to everyone around him mm -hmm. um but obviously the reality for him is very different and he's struggling and so you're both seeing kind of francis as like the guy that everyone in the neighborhood is obsessed with and then the real francis and hannah i wondered if you could talk about yeah a little bit about that character and how the relationship with michael is depicted over the course of the film I love the characterization together because it's kind of, you know, you often get that sort of, you have the, the kind of narrator, the kind of person perspective who's, you see everything from their point of view. So we have, we understand, we see them in the kind of, we see um, Francis in so many different lights, um, but I really love the way that their kind of relationship, you know, again, this is not a film um, or script that wastes words. Mm -hmm. And so much of this is about looks 
and feelings and capturing an emotion and making space for that and letting things breathe. Letting the intensity of these feelings like marinate in the room, on the screen, in the scene, so that you kind of can really viscerally connect with what's going on. But I do, I did have to say when it came to Michael, um, which again, such a real understated performance and someone who is so insular mm. that he so struggles. Like, it's like you're watching him and you just want him to just like, get out, get out of your shell. Mm -hmm. Like, come on, step up. And I do feel that there's such a focus on the other people that the kind of, I suppose, the progression of his character art did not felt slightly um, kind of, was slightly underwhelming. I think I wanted a bit more to come from that, a bit more realization beyond how that played out. And also, again, like the kind of element of the big kind of catalyst that has created, you know, that that basically has the before and the after mm. math of what went on. I wanted that, that for me felt slightly clumsy in the reasoning and I suppose the kind of, yeah, I felt like it was a bit slightly superficial in the delivery. I wanted a deeper reason for that situation to happen than what I think it led up to. And even the moments I felt that I, I, I felt a bit jarring. I watched it with a friend of mine and we were both quite jarred by that thing. And it felt the most conventional part of this film in what is, I would consider unconventional in the sense of the way the way that it show you said it's not you know it, it's kind of memories it's very memory based it's not in a certain order even the kind of th the through line is not really there it's just mm. capturing moments as you might look back on it flashbacks you know mm. there's a kind of real sense of like you know when it's like you know kind of like arrival in a sense of time is just everything's happening all at once mm -hmm. It had that sort of kind of first that feel to me, which I think was very beautiful. Mm. And of course, you know, Canadian, the evil nerve, Canadian director. Yeah. Um, that's, so yeah. that's really interesting to me. I will say this in terms of what the actual inciting incident is, I was a little bit wrong footed because it felt like they were teasing a different inciting incident than what we got. But in terms of what it actually is, I don't think I was jarred by it because there's a lot of talk about this being an anti-black world and that's read it throughout the entire movie. And so I wasn't jarred by what it ultimately was, even though I thought it was going to be something else, if that makes sense. Hmm. I mean, yeah, it, kind of, it made sense to me because it's, I think the whole movie is about, it's like, it's a breaking point mm -hmm. and I won't elaborate on that because <laughs> I don't want to give it away. But I, for me, it's that scene was like, Oh, this is the breaking point mm -hmm. and it hasn't come out of nowhere. It's like all the forces of everything kind of finally goes, Oh, this was going to be inevitable considering every incident that we've seen beforehand. Mm -hmm. I kind of just want to re-edit uh, what I said about the script and the thick at the, the, uh, the script and the kind of like what they're not saying because mm. actually I think thinking back to it now because I saw this like maybe like about a month ago so like yeah. but I, I think my when I say there's dialogue on it like I think it did far better to convey emotions and feelings with them not saying anything than the dialogue because there were some instances I did feel 
that um, it was like, I think when, when Aisha, when she was saying things, it was like a bit on the nose. It's like, mm-hmm. it was oh, so I know what you mean. There's a scene where she has a whole speech about like our immigrant parents, they sacrifice yeah. all of this stuff. And, and it's, it's like, like you don't probably... need to say it. We know. Yeah. It, you know? <laughs> and I think for a film that is so, says so much of what you're seeing, I think it kind of, those moments were kind of, unnecessary so yeah I think looking back to it again sorry I'm thinking about it I was like you know when you forget a scene you like remember that so I think that's why I think it's strength it was a, a aesthetically visually very strong um I think something some elements of the script um didn't quite work for me but I think the strength of the performance and again direction and other things so yeah I, I think it, it did a uh, solid Maybe it was really quite, yeah, a real soulful sitting down at a cinema. Well, that brings us to our screen stream or skip on Brother um, Amon. I'm going to say screen. Um, I thought I was very, very compelled by this. Reminded me of Moonlight at various times. And that is always a good film to have your film be compared to. Um, so, yeah, screen. Hannah. Um, I will say screen because I do think this is a real sense, a sensual experience in the cinema, not in a kind of sexual sense, but like in a real, like, this is something that you kind of want to have, be surrounded by the music and have the dark space and literally have your full focus on to really take in all the kind of, kind of beauty and like fluidity and stuff that goes on, on, on what we're seeing uh, on screen. I would like to say screen, but I kind of want to retroactively degrade Haunting of Venice to stream because I thought... <laughs> I That's thought, why I said stream. Like, I thought Cassandra was... I didn't realise it was going to cinemas and that's three screens that I've said this week. You're allowed I, to do that, Clarice. It's not against the rules. <laughs> I know, but I would say... Probably go see this one before the mustache movie. <laughs> <laughs> but he is actual power. I just like the mustache movies, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, would uh, mustaches? <laughs> You've got mustaches on the brain. Mustaches, you know, at a time period where people had a lot of mustaches, it was the eighties, and you know what? How they'd watch movies in the eighties on VHS, and you know what you had to do when you went back to Blockbuster? You had to be kind, rewind. It's time for be kind, rewind. <laughs> Kansas City Chef. Lost a lot of people. People connected only by the slightest of events. Then why don't you just go ahead and give me your wallet? Am I being mugged? That is how these affairs begin. The cat's in town. Good cat? Who's good cat? He shows people dying. He vanishes. What are you looking for? This is our guy, Nick Fisher. Who is he? Just a loser. Boss wants to see you. Who's supposed to The guy we work for. I'm not the guy you're looking for. I don't live here. Yeah, well, you look like the guy that lives here. Then you don't know what the guy that lives here looks like. What he means to say is you look like you live here. Yeah, that's what I mean to say. Sorry. What happened to your nose? It's a very long story. I think it's time you told me that story. Well, there's this guy that called the boss. I'm sorry, who are you? I'm the boss. 
They picked up the wrong guy. Wrong guy for what? Whatever it is you want to see me about. Do you know what I want to see you about? No. Then how do you know I have the wrong guy? And then right across the street lives this man they call the rabbi. Why do they call him the rabbi? Because he's a rabbi. Yeah. I should be so lucky, 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 lucky. I should be so lucky in love. Mm-mm-mm. I should be so lucky, 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 lucky. I should be so lucky in love. Ah, <laughs> uh, Kylie. Kylie, I feel like she's like the only one like who is like not problematic of like, like no one can say a bad word. Kylie, Kylie, you will always be famous. Have you seen her live? Uh, I have seen her live. I have seen Good. her live at uh, O2. Yeah, it's amazing. And, I'm, and I went with my mom. My mom took me and we were in this box and there was a, like a seven tier carrot cake and it was great. Wow. I sat next to, I was sat, to, sat next to um, an, old Patrick from EastEnders. And I had my cake and I was like eating the cake, watching Kylie. I sat next to Patrick from EastEnders. I mean, is that the, not the only way you should be watching Kylie? <laughs> <laughs> true. Anyway, uh, I don't think there's a Kylie song in this, but there we go. <laughs> a case of mistaken identity lands Slevin, Josh Hartnett, into the middle of a war being plotted by two of the city's most ruthless rival crime bosses. Under constant surveillance by Detective Bukowski and assassin Good Cat, he must get them before they get him. Written by... Jason Smilovich, and directed by Paul McGuigan. It features an all-star cast, including Josh Hartnett, of course, Lucy Liu, Bruce Willis, Morgan Freeman, Sir Ben Kingsley, and Stanley Tucci, and also, like, Corey Stoll. Yeah. <laughs> Fun looking back on that. So, the reason... So, it's getting, a, it's getting a re-release, and it should be re-released now in digital, like, a, I don't know, 4K restoration. And um, for me, as you'll find from the interview, is that I had this. I even... I have had this DVD since, like, whatever it came out on DVD, like, 2007. I watched it so much. There's still, like... It's, like, I'm lucky it doesn't skip, but I... I as soon as I knew we were going to do this, I was like, let's let's dust off the Lucky Number 11 DVD. I even offered to these guys if you needed to borrow it. So if anyone needs to borrow it, or you could just do the digital download. Um, so this is, I love this film. Um, but at the time, it got really mixed reviews when it came out. And so I thought it'd be a really good subject for us to do a little bit of a reappraisal. And um, Paul McGuigan, he's great. I had a, such a good chat with him. Uh, and there was some really, cool, some really cool revelations about certain scenes, like, how um, we talk about, you know, there's a scene between Morgan Freeman and Sir Big Kingsley where they're kind of tied up back to back. And that was a scene that was actually written after they signed everyone on because they realized, oh, wow. wait, you got Morgan Freeman and <laughs> Big Kingsley. Like, yeah. we've got to get them doing something together. Mm-hmm. Um, some really interesting things about like Josh Hartnett getting signed on. He was living with the writer at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, some really, really cool, interesting th- things about it that I feel like. You know, especially when it's coming out now, where noir mysteries are having real renaissance right now, and Josh Hartnett's Sorry, having Josh a. Hartnett. Sorry. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, please enjoy this interview. Paul, welcome to the Fate of Black podcast. Um, we do a segment on called Be Kind Rewind, and I have to say, as someone who was so ha- pleased to get out my copy of Lucky Number Eleven that I did buy <laughs> at the time, and re- it's like still a bit scratched on top because I watched it so much. It feels uh, uh, I feel like it's always been unfair that this film has been slightly wasn't received by critics as much as I, as as well as I received it. So, um, Paul, welcome. Being... <laughs> well, thank you. You're already in my good book, so. Um... <laughs> But no, I mean, you know, it had its it had its critiques, which is good. I, you know, I like films that are kind of polarizing in that sense, anyway. But I think as time goes on, as 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 
as time chips away at movies, sometimes people can find them again and and enjoy them for what they are rather than for what a critic might say, you know, um, because they're they're confused by it or think it's at that time, I guess the big thing was always Tarantino-esque or something because Bruce Willis happened to be in it. So I don't know, you know, and, and it was smart dialogue and all that kind of stuff. So um and so, I thought I had more in common with um M. Night Charlemagne <laughs> with like six cents. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I mean, that's that's a good point to that, you know. Um, but you know, look, um, it's nice that it's coming back out again. And and actually, you know, as time goes on, I get a lot of people coming up and talking to me about it, you know, especially crews, you know, um, sort of your younger crews as well that are starting out and they come up and they just and they don't want to be seen to be sucking up to the director because that's a terrible thing to do, but they're like, I just want to say, you know. I thought Sliven was amazing and I just one of my favorite films. And I get that quote quite a lot, which is really nice, you know, within the film industry because people mm. appreciate think the I think they appreciate the kind of tone of it and 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 we we had so much fun with that movie trying to misdirect audiences and 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 with the performances being really sharp and fast mm. and you know that I a friend of mine Carl Anger, who is a sports journalist at The Athletic, he said to me, it was because I was posted about like watching the film. He goes, goes, I've been using the Kansas City shuffle in my articles ever since. Like he uses <laughs> that as a reference point. And I think for me, like I it's one of those um yeah, 2006. So I was actually just going to uni. And I think it's also like Josh Hartner at that time, like. I mean, the fact that you had him like running around in a towel for a good portion of it was that sealed the deal for me. But uh, I, think no. he, <laughs> I think he was in that period where he it was kind of, um, you know, he was the leading man and he's got this real charisma in it that he get like the slev and the way he switches from like being like, oh, I'm just poor guy, yeah. wrong place, one time, the switch yeah. into become seven. And you just worked with him on Wicker Park. So I'd love yeah. to talk a little bit about like, um, how like you know was it how the how how did it come about lucky number seven was it like he was attached first or you attached first how was that collaboration continued oh the, that's a great question because actually um we had done wicker part together josh and i had done wicker part together we had a great time working on that then uh, i met jason smilovic who's the writer of slevin and jason was i mean he was very young man he was only 30 if that and uh, we were hanging out in los angeles and jason was friends with with josh and with the the composer Josh Ralph, actually, funny enough, and we all became quite tight. And then we, 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 we Josh moved to New York, and Jason uh, was was living in New York. So they hung out together, and actually, I think they moved in together at one point, so that Jason could get the whole lot. And it was when Josh used to come down with the towel, and he used to do that thing with his belly and all that. You know, look at me, I'm a big film star. <laughs> And then, and that's how he started writing those scenes out, and started to get behind Josh a little bit, you know. And because Josh is really, Josh at that time wasn't really interested in being a a, a, a pinup, you know. He was much more interested in learning his craft and being a a, a, a proper serious actor. And um, and so this kind of, I think this for him was his feet in both of those camps, you know, and then also just to let himself have fun at himself, but also have fun within the character himself, as you said, you know, like being the sort of innocent and, oh, that's a shame, you know, the boys, you're breaking the boy's nose and all that. And then you realise as it comes on that he's actually behind the whole thing. And I, I think that that was something that was really attractive. But we did, we did focus a lot on Josh as Josh Hartnett 
as him. So in a way that that I mean, take out the fact he's killing people, but the fact <laughs> that he's you know, there's a lot in Josh in that in that in that character, you know, um, and and we kind of we were lucky enough to be able to tap into that because we knew him really well, and so it, it was easier to to enlist Josh as it were because he was turning down everything at that point, so we had to. So we had to go and, go and go and live with him in, in order to get him cast. So, you know, and he was brilliant. And I, I just love Josh Hartnett. And I'm so glad to see him, you know, doing his own thing now, you know, mm. where he wanted to be. It is interesting that there's this, everyone's talking about the kind of like, like, so there was like the reconnaissance and like the Brenonnaissance. And now it's like the Hartnessance when it comes to like Josh <laughs> Hartnett coming back. And it's interesting because I don't even know what the point was where like, because, you know, again, as you know, being like a millennial girl, like I was like, four days and 40 nights. I was like, that yeah. too. Like, yeah. I was like all over him. <laughs> like, I've seen everything possible. And then it shifted. It was really interesting, but it's really cool to see him come back. And I wonder also if this is going to be the timing of this re-release, not only because he's kind of making a bit more of a, you know, obviously with Oppenheimer and we're doing Black Mirror, but there's also a sense that the kind of like neo-noir crime fiction sort of mystery element has really come back in a meaningful way. Like, you know, I love the fact that Lindsay references Columbo and I love that she's like the investigator. Yeah. And for like Lucy Liu to go on to star as like Watson in like the Sherlock TV series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you think about like, again, that kind of timing wise? Because, you know, this, yeah, the, t- the, the, the environment now seems like this is the perfect time for people if they had never seen Lucky Number 11. And you're into it and you're needing like something that's not glass onion or you know poker face check yeah. out looking number seven no definitely I, I think i think what those films have helped for sure the ones you referenced there but like poker face and stuff like that you know i think i think you know we were using yeah that kind of noir a it was a kind of modern noir but we're using that but also i think josh like i mean josh has has is doing what he's always wanted to do, you know, and and he turned down everybody. Then, you know, it wasn't mm. it wasn't tapping people's doors trying to get a gig. He was doing the opposite of that. He was almost like pushing it away from himself. So I think when you come back like that, you're much stronger. And I think when you say come back, what I mean is that when he now kind of aligns himself a little bit, and I can't speak for him because I haven't met Josh for a little while now. So, but I think the the as far as the the genre of of film is concerned, yeah, I think so. I mean, like you know, I. I did Sherlock. I, I my first TV show was Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch, and I started that whole show off, you know, and it, it, because there's a playfulness to that genre as filmmakers, there's something playful, and the idea is that you can you you take your audience and you say, right, you're smart enough, so come with us, and it's not like starting going, oh, we have to make it clear. every every scene has to have a clarity to it so that we don't lose the audience. It's the opposite of that. You're saying, yeah, let's lose you for a bit, and let's see you leaning in to the tv a little bit going what the fuck is going on i don't understand this but you're enjoying being confused you're enjoying wondering if every single person that's on the screen has got something to do with somebody else and mm. there's that complexity i think that people really enjoy the way they did with sherlock as well there was there's a complexity to that character you know he's just not he's just not the nice person and that everybody sometimes i think we try to play it too safe because we don't want to upset anybody i think this genre of filmmaking you can you can do both you can you can really have fun with these characters and they can be terrible and they can be nasty and they can be mm. funny at the same time because that's the way that Jason Smilovic, who wrote this, the screenplay, that's the way he wanted the characters to be, was to be 
to be to be not to be judged but to be enjoyed you know so i'd love to talk a little bit about like the casting of that getting some of these big hitters and also you know morgan is not really known as like i feel like he's like he's done a few things since where he's like the bad guy but i've always yeah. felt like he's like the good guy so him to play the bad guy is like oh no not the voice of god not, not red <laughs> <laughs> well can i say your your your, your intu- intuition is very very good because actually when we were putting the plastic bag on his head he called me over and he said paul I'm just going to tell you right now, you're going to have to reshoot this whole scene because the last time they tried to kill me in a film, the audience weren't having it. They didn't want it. They're like, that's Morgan Freeman. He's God. And that was really hilarious. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, nobody is going to accept me as this bad guy, so I'm just going to let you know right now. But, you know, actually, fair enough, that scene was never in the original script to be sent to all the actors. What happened is, this is what I love about this film, it, 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 it has its own organic kind of life to it. So what happened was we got uh, Josh, Lucy Liu, and then Bruce Willis came on board because Bruce, I did a film called Gangster Number One with Paul Bettany. Mm. And we had shown that film at the AFI. And I got, I landed in LA to show the movie. And my agent called me and said, You're not going to believe this, Paul, but uh, Bruce Willis wants to meet you. He just saw your movie. And and so it was amazing, right? As a, as a young filmmaker going to LA and you sit with Bruce Willis. And he was really genuinely kind of loved the film. And he was like, And then his parting words were, one day I'm going to come and work with you. And of course, I was a bit like, oh, whatever. I just had a great time with Bruce Willis. And sure enough, you know, I was in Montreal where we shot the film and I was prepping the movie and I got a call and it was Bruce saying he was going to come to play a good cat. And I said to him, my words to him were, we can't afford you. And he said, don't worry about it, I'm coming. And that was the kind of, that was the way that people, that all those actors came with that intention was we don't care how much you're paying me we just want to do the film and because bruce is in it because lucy's in it and josh is in it then we started getting ben kingsley then we got morgan and it all sort of snowballed you know and they all came for the right reason there was not one conversation where anyone said why are you they can we change this scene or can we do that scene differently they just want to do it because they love the script and then when we were in montreal and we realized we had Morgan Freeman and and Ben Kingsley, and we had this opportunity to bring them t- t- together. I sat with Jason. I said, "Look, we've got to bring them in." Is the one scene I think we're missing a real a real moment here, where he, George gets his where where Slevin gets gets his revenge because he gets it face to face. It was never written like that. It was always written as a kind of shadowy figure, you know, and <clears throat> and so uh, we locked Jason in a in, in his office and threw. You know, the odd pizza <laughs> his door, and and one one weekend, and he re he rewrote the whole ending, and uh, which is really complex ending. I mean, it's a complicated, it's a pack of cards. You can imagine if, if once you start rewriting that stuff, you're like, oh god, you know. And 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 I was worried because these are these are actors of came because they love the script, and I was a bit worried that the changes they wouldn't like, you know. But they they, they loved them and embraced them and. Um, and to the point where you know, and this this is the true story. It was like on on Bruce Willis's day off was the day with a couple of days where we're doing the scene with a uh, Morgan Freeman and 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 Ben Kingsley with the bag over their head, and and a Ben a a, a Bruce Willis came in and sat right next to me the whole time through those two scenes on his days yeah. off because <laughs> you never so, want to miss that. <laughs> yeah, he was just like this is amazing. And, you know, and and he was, because it was theatre, we shot it like theatre, you know, we shot it, which I tend to do anyway, I tend to not cut the camera very much, so 
we shot we shot it like theater, and it was like that because this was a new scene that we just written, and we weren't really yeah. sure how it was going to evolve. You know? And I love I love Ben Kingsley's choice, like just when the bags over the head and the difference on how they react, and like what we know about the rabbi so far, and like how he's like, look, um, grass is always green for me. I'm ready for anything, and his like kind of stillness in that moment yeah. compared to like the bosses like Morgan Freeman's like moving around I thought oh god and then now I know that that was like just rewritten it's like oh those choices were amazing I mean I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass but you're, you've been very um you're very smart about your observations but um there was a great it was a great moment when a Ben Kingsley um, I know I'm supposed to call him Sir Ben but I'm a Scottish person I'm not going to call anyone Sir anything um but I did read P- Peter Bradshaw's review before I got on. I was like, the whole first, first like three paragraphs is about no, the fact that like, he credited himself yeah. as a Ben Kinsley. It's like, is this a review or like a no, That was a strange review. I mean, I like Peter, but I don't know what that was about. But um, <laughs> we, yeah, so there was a scene where um, the first scene we did with with Bruce Willis and, and, and Ben Kingsley, where Bruce goes to meet him and he's drinking a little cup of tea and he asked for this tea. It was never written like that. He asked for the tea. Because he wants to be seen as being quite fragile, and there's a moment where he starts to tear up a little bit. And that was never again. There was never, and he didn't want to. And and actually, I remember we, we shot that scene. It took us a whole day to shoot that one scene, and I remember everyone. It was the quietest day I've ever had on set. Like nobody's moved, nobody said anything. And then as I said action, as I said like cut for the final setup, everyone started clapping. And it was just a masterclass with from both of them, you know, and and because you always think in your mind, even as as a director, you always have a very clear vision, or you think you have a clear vision of who who this character is and how you want to move forward with it as you're filming. And that that really caught me off guard was was the vulnerability, uh, the sadness that was in that character, you know. Um, it was, so there was a great layer. Of, there was a lot of layering going on there with with that with that with those two particular and I think that did come down from that and you're right with the with the whole thing and and that idea of death and how you how death faces you because you kind of if you are that kind of person who's a gangster and you're that violent death's going to come to you like that you yeah. know that's the way and you're a rabbi happens. and you're really religious and you're like well okay yeah, exactly. it was going to come exactly. some point yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not going to be treated well if you feel that's your beliefs you know you're not going to like when you face the, the big guy or whoever it is you know yeah and be like, okay, I'm, I'm fucked, you know. So, um, and so that I felt, I felt, I felt there was lots of nuances in, in there with that storyline, definitely. And I feel like the chemistry between Lucy and Josh is just like palpable. The scene yeah. where she leaves, she catches him naked and she runs back in. The smile yeah. on her face is just so perfect. I love her in this. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about shooting with her and how their relationship, because again, even like the kind of, the moments later when they're in bed together it just yeah I just I think chemistry is such a specific thing and as much as this is a gangster story it's also very much a love story fundamentally and that for me was the kind of one of the real driving forces that really um kept me going through it as well that as much as this was all like you know ends in kind of there's a big tragedy there's also like oh everyone just kind of wants to be loved (laughs) and there's in love and it's all grief and tragedy but Love is, if not whatever. What did they say in uh, Marvel? What is grief if not love persevering? I'm sorry, that's become like the thing <laughs> everyone says now. But, but I think I think I think there's a kind of energy with with Lucy. She's she's very bub- bubbly in the sense of she's incredibly smart, incredibly intuitive, but she's also very energetic. You know, 
she is kind of bounces about quite a bit and and I, I'd I'd met Lucy quite a bit before it and got to know her and then Josh and her were 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 good pals as well as Jason the writer, so we felt quite confident in, in how Lucy it was a kind of like his girl Friday kind of feeling where she's always jumping in and out and and then the dialogue's very fast and very funny and very smart like you know how did you know I was tall because you just got a tall knock you know and all that kind of stuff you know and and because she is a detective so as you said before we didn't want to do this expositional thing where she's like. You know, like this is what I'd like to do, but she did. She loves the clumbo, but she does it in a different way. It's a sort of, mm. it's a sort of cultural references all the time that she has, you know. And so her character, we wanted her character to be incredibly much. It's very much the engine of the story, and she was very much. If it was going to be a love moment, a love story, it was from her. If it was going to be something in danger, if the if the jeopardy was high, then the audience would see it through her eyes, you know. So, um, like the moment when 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 a a, a Bruce goes into to shoot her, you know. And so I always remember that I picked the wallpaper out, especially for Lucy. When we first see her, there was this kind of Japanese flowered wallpaper. And I had this image of just her against this wallpaper to show. And again, it's a misdirect. I used the wallpaper in a very misdirecting way. So I wanted the audience I'm to- I'm so glad you brought this up because my next question, <laughs> my final one I've got time was like, can we discuss the wallpaper? Yeah, because yeah, there's yeah, so yeah. much great wallpaper on show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could show you around my house. There's tons of wallpaper in my house. But um, yeah, no, but I used the wallpaper in a misdirect because I wanted a, an image of just Lucy against the wallpaper to make her look vulnerable and 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 small and kind of fragile, so that the audience would think that's who her character is. But actually, she's the opposite of that. She's the strength mm-hmm. behind the whole film, and she's the energy and she's the the motor behind it. You know, and she's very much like that. And then I then we just took all the makeup. We didn't want any makeup on her. We wanted the freckles. We wanted, and she's so into that. And she was such a, and she was she was such a great energy on set. She was a great energy, in in promoting the movie and being a part of the the whole crew on the crew because the crew were amazing. You know, we went to Montreal. And we shot it and. Everyone just fell in love with, with with Lucy because she had that power and that energy about her, you know. And that's what you kind of have to bottle when you're trying to make a film is mm. like, how do we create this on set? And so on set, they were always laughing and having a good fun with each other. Whereas, you know, when she was doing her other stuff, she she, she was in character as well. So it's, it was great, you know, and we had such a great... And that's what I'm saying, like casting all these actors who have different skills and they have different people. They, they, come, to the, they come to an audience with a preconception and if you can kind of mix that up and as we did with Morgan and and with all these people, and if you can have a writer who's as smart as Jason Smiley was because and people are coming for the right reasons, then they just enjoy those characters, you know. Yeah. And my final thing, yeah, I just on the production design of it, because it like I love something that feels so like naughty, early no early aughts, early noughties. Because yeah. I think about the <laughs> the wallpaper in the the kind of apartment building between yeah. uh, Nick and uh, Lindsay's house, the black and like the spiral. Then there's also the hotel wallpaper, which is that brownie yeah. art deco. And then you've got, you know, all the bits and bobs. So, and it's, and again, like uh, but much is supposed to be in New York. This is obviously shot like in Montreal, which obviously Canada yeah. is used quite a lot. So can you tell me a little bit about how like the production down also kind of like informed the character and kind of the story yeah. um, you want to tell? 
Definitely. I mean, I, I'm, I love production design. It's my, if I wasn't a director, I would definitely want to be in production design. So we worked with a production designer called Francois Sagan, who's this amazing... I really want to look around your house now. I'm like, what do you do, like an architecture <laughs> digest, very, AD? Very, very, very low key for me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, we worked with Francois Sagan, who, 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 who designed a lot of the Circus du Soleil earlier stuff and all that. And he's a native of Montreal. And my first, my first sit down with Francois was, we want to... We want to have, I wanted to have wallpaper everywhere because I wanted to misdirect people. I want them to almost at times be looking at the wallpaper, wondering why, why, why is that? Why is that there? I don't understand. Why is that there? In order to, so that they always think that they've missed something, you know, as I said, with the Lucy thing or with the, with the hallway, there was a moment I knew I had to have, have Slevin coming down the hallway and you had to, there was an audience who had to feel he was actually going to kill Lucy because he's been told by Slevin she has to go. And I wanted that moment as it's coming down the wallpaper to almost move as he was mm. walking down. And so they're all very specific, as as random as they feel, because I know some people think that somebody's just thrown up all over the set or something. They were no. very specific, <laughs> and I appreciate your appreciation of it, but, you know, we were very specific about, I was very specific about everything from the apartments to 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 the, even when the the the, 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 the boss's apartment with the woods and stuff like that i wanted to make it feel warm i didn't want it to make it feel oh he's a he's a bad guy so everyone's got to be cold and 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 you know lacking of any any sort of character and i wanted to really create the characters because i always feel that when you're trying to convey the baddies the baddies are not always baddies you know they're sometimes you know they're very soft-spoken they can be those those are the ones i'm scared of is this the the ones that don't say much you know it's not the people that are all brass yeah. and ready for it. so i wanted to make sure yeah. that every character because we had such a complicated story that the exposition of the character was coming through the the the, the, the design so you kind of had a feeling for who they were as soon as you saw them you know yeah I definitely felt with the two bosses, it was like, even with the staircase that's coming down, it felt more like Bond, like, but like Roger Moore era, like Sean Connery, like Roger Moore (laughs) era Bond, because that very specific. And I always think like, if the, if the production design is so kind of like catches your eye and so specific, it's like, that is intentional. And I love it because I always think like everything factors into it. I mean, even the fact that uh, Slevin, uh, he's wearing, Henry's wearing these like tartan sweater vests. Yeah. Like. That was a choice. That was a clashing of, you know, I mean, I'm wearing white just now, but I do normally wear a lot of pattern. And so, you know, occasionally the production, the the costumer would say to me, Paul, or or, or Josh would go in to get a costume fit and he would come out and he would go, who do I look like, Paul? And I'd be like, I don't know. I just look like you. I'm dressed like you. (laughs) Easter egg. (laughs) You know, but I I do love, I, I, I do love, I do love pattern and I do love texture. And I think it's important because you know, I I grew up as a very working class kid in in Scotland in the east east end of Glasgow, and people always portrayed us as being a very black and white bleak existence. It was the opposite of that because we couldn't afford to have our house all in the one colours or a carpet all the way through the house. It was different bits of carpet. There was a bit of wallpaper here. There was a bit of wallpaper there. I grew up in the seventies. You know, there was all that seventies clothes. So in a way, in a way, I've always been quite. I've always been I've always embraced the idea that we live in we should live in a colorful interesting mm. life 
I always hated being portrayed as a working class kid as being grey and dull. It was the opposite of that. And it's not until you go to middle class houses you realise how grey and dull some people live, you know. <laughs> oh my God, the beige it's... takeover at the moment and this like industrial grey <laughs> that everyone's got in their houses. Um, yeah, 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 and yeah. that pea green or whatever it is, you know. You should watch Scrapper though. I can highly recommend that because that for me is like kitchen heard, sink magical yeah. realism. It's beautiful. Well, that's what we were, trying, we were trying to do a kind of magical realism in it because we were trying to bring that other element to it, which was this kind of fantastical element to the storytelling. You know, that was important to us. But I really want to watch that Scrapper, and I'm 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 probably going to do that this weekend because I've heard some great stuff. Great. Oh, great. please. Yeah, Defo. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a oh, treat. <laughs> Super well, you've fun. Been so, you've been so smart and um, always, you're always catching me out on things I didn't know about my own. <laughs> no, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, good luck with the re-release. I will probably download it again to see it in a, but maybe a better quality than my DVD. <laughs> I might even watch it again as well. <laughs> so yeah, very unfortunately, because uh, time issues, I only watched 35 minutes of this. I'm so sorry. <laughs> All respect and love to Josh Hartnett. She uh, stopped watching it when Josh Hartnett put clothes on. <laughs> I did appreciate that because I was like, oh, it's a nice gender reversal of getting caught in a situation, half naked. Um Yeah. I, um, my initial impressions of luck, because I've never seen this. Mm. Uh, I think it was 2006 when like Sin City came out. I think I was deep in my Robert Rodriguez. (laughs) 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 So I think that's probably why I didn't see this. It did strike me as being the most mid to 2006 movie ever made because it's sort of, because it was, it's the transition out of the 90s, like, Tarantino craze, right? Like, but it's gone past enough where it also has to have a little bit of, like, the post-2001 grittiness. There's, like, I guess Guy Ritchie was working at this point. So there's, like, the mm-hmm. Guy Ritchie influences coming in. But it's all very pre, like, what we have now, which I guess is the post-John Wick era of action um so Hannah I mean obviously you have loved this movie for a long time (laughs) and I'm presuming to you the style of this movie has you know it doesn't strike you as being unusual or specific when it's the time that the movie's coming out but looking at it now do you kind of see the the context of it does it feel 2006 no oh yeah 100 percent. oh yeah yeah of course it does i mean also the fact that it's like shot in canada it's supposed to be new york city it's great to be fair everything is still shot i know yeah true 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 um, yeah, 100%. It feels like a kind of time capsule. But I, it's interesting. I said to Paul, like, I was like, I feel like this has uh, one of the issues he talks about is like how, you know, because Bruce Willis was in Pulp Fiction, everyone compared this to Quentin Tarantino and the quite the dialogue heavy things and quite quick wrap up back and forth. And it's like, for me, this actually is a little bit considering it has more of an like the plot twist of it is more like an M. Night Charlemagne sort of situation. Like, for me, that's kind of. You know, I think the problem that we have is that um, I suppose one of the issues with critics is that this knee-jerk reaction is a reliance on comparing it to something else mm-hmm. and also not also recognising that something might have been written w- without even someone seeing this thing or at the same time, you know what I mean, that certain situation. And, you know, literally, remember when Get Out came out, every single bloody <laughs> horror about it's like, oh, every, all they ever did was reference Get Out. Mm-hmm. So I do think it was a... I think sometimes this one... 
came out, it was a little bit unfair. I, I certainly, obviously, I did. I mean, what, 2006? So I was like 18, I think, when it came out. Mm. Um, so I was, and again, I'm really susceptible to anything Josh Hartner in it. But I thought it was really fun and playful. And I really liked the twist, the twist element of it. And it fit for me. And yeah, I just think it was really fun. And like, you see things like Poker Face now and, you know, Glass Onion. And it feels like this is certainly a precursor to something like that, which is, you know, and also like def- define your expectations, like having Morgan Freeman play like a mob boss. It was, you know, and again, listen to the interview, you can hear him like certain like kind of anecdotes from talking about Mo- Morgan Freeman just being like, wait, I just don't think people are going <laughs> to accept this. <laughs> like, I don't think you're going to make a lot of people unhappy if you suffocate me. <laughs> you know, it's like that. I think that I just, you know, I, I, Maybe there's certain bits of it, but for me, you know, I'm not saying it's the best film ever made, but there's something about the kind of chemistry between Lucy Liu and Josh Hartnett, the way it looks, like the wallpaper, even like the moments of like, you know, I just, the characters, the performances, so many of those things just really clicked for me. And there's a reason why, you know, I've watched it so many times. It's just because I just found it a really well done, not too, not challenging you too much, but having fun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I loved it. I love it. I still love it. Yeah, I don't think it uh, it feels from what it didn't feel like derivative. I think there's a difference between something like being a product of the entire culture that's going on around mm. it and being derivative. So I wouldn't say Tarantino. I would say probably more Guy Ritchie than Tarantino even. Mm. But Amon, this is the bit that I didn't get to. I don't know the twists. So did those have you had you seen it before? I didn't ask that. I had seen it before. Okay. Yeah. Were the the twists, did they surprise you then? Do they still feel surprising now? Like, let's get into that part. It still does feel surprising now because Mr. Smith, the character that Bruce Willis plays, you're never quite sure of him until one big moment happens and you're like, oh, And it really turns the movie on its Mm. head. Um, And I really, really enjoyed that. And there's some other twists that happens later on in the film uh, that also got me. And as we know, if you're a fan of the Faith Flight podcast, I'm not typically the fan of fake-out deaths. I don't like it, typically. I think they do it well here, at least one time, maybe multiple times. I know for, for one, at least one time, and I, I, I know I know we said full spoilers, but at the same time, Chris hasn't watched it and I don't want to give this away. It's fine. <laughs> there's a she thing that there's that. a thing that you think has happened to Lucy Liu at a certain point in the movie and it's revealed that That she died. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean <laughs> you, <laughs> I don't know you think that I've just been talking about putting out there and then I was like a thing that you think happens to a character. <laughs> Just, I don't understand how you deduced that, Chris. I was being so careful. Um, but <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that was another sort of one that worked for me, not only because of just the plot mechanics of it all, but because of the character mechanics, because Lucy Liu, especially, she's so immediately likable in this <laughs> and she's so perky. I love her personality and the, the, the chemistry, as, as you said, Hannah is very much there from that first scene onwards. And the quick-witted dialogue is coming so thick and fast, but it's also just cute and sweet. Mm. And that's a very tricky combination to pull off. Um, so yeah, I, I had a good time with this. 
back then. I also had a good time with it now. And also, even though you may not walk away from this film knowing the names of supporting characters, a couple of them make an impression. There's one, I think his name is Elvis, played by Dorian Missick. And oh, yeah. <laughs> and some of his dialogue and the way he delivers it is so great. Orders are orders. It's <laughs> one of them, which just always makes me laugh. Mm. And he's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're taking you to see the boss today and stuff like that. <laughs> which is, it just I will say, <laughs> I will say, um, you know, sometimes when they ca- do casting mm-hmm. and they're trying to do a sober secret, the problem with this film is that they cast too well for mm. a little boy character that I think when I watched it originally, I was like, he looks so much like Josh. <laughs> and it kind of like, oh, you... that the little boy is Josh at the beginning. Yeah. I yeah. assumed that immediately. <laughs> he looks so much like a random fucking little boy. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. be like, cut, smash cut to protagonist. But he also I looks exactly like, is. he also looks exactly like Josh Hunter. Hmm. But I think what also like, again, um, I think get that dialogue, the delivery of it, Lucy Liu, I, uh, Josh, they're just, I just, you know, when you feel yourself smiling because mm-hmm. you're like, they're so sweet and cute. And the scene where she comes back, where she comes, she she comes in and he's like, about to take his tattoo off and he puts it in. Yeah. And she goes away and then she comes back and she's like, oh, let's have it for a second show. And it's like, I love that moment because yeah. also it's just like, again, it's like, and she's the only pretty much the only female character in this, mm-hmm. apart from someone, a couple of side things. Mm-hmm. Like, which is frustrating because obviously, you know, classic case of like, we can only have one woman in a film. Mm-hmm. But I think what I liked about it is that she has autonomy. She doesn't, she's like very intuitive. She's kind of like, doesn't just like, she's not a crazy damsel in these situations. Like, and it's a real love story underneath this, mm-hmm. as well as being this really interesting kind of idea mm-hmm. about paranoia and what we do and power mm-hmm. um, and claiming that back. And I, I again, when I talked earlier about, that sequence between, you know, I think I really enjoy the rabbi, uh, Ben Kingsley's mm-hmm. character. And I think- Why do they call him the rabbi, Hannah? Because he's a rabbi. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> um, but I just think his choices are not fit. And even when he gets, when there's the death, it's like, oh, this is exactly how he would. Hmm. Because Ben Kingsley is like the, the script and the character when he delivers things earlier makes sense that this character would act that way, mm. this other character would act that way. And for me, that just brings it all together where it feels like this is a... So maybe the comparison... I, I think in a way, just because something is like something else, maybe that's the good thing. Because actually the good things about them... Like the compar- if there's a comparative, it's like, great, yeah, it is good. And I look, I'm not saying it's Pulp Fiction, but I'm saying there are some great goddamn performances in this that feel like akin to you know i don't think we should discount it just because it didn't come first yeah it's a tricky balance because critics we do love ourselves a comparison and a reference and sometimes that is smart well that's that most of the time we do that i feel like that that is smart and it gives uh readers and listeners sort of a, a reference point and that's always useful but sometimes we really put a lot of emphasis on one without giving enough to the other. Um, and this is a, this is one where, yes, if, if we're comparing it to Tarantino and, you know, the top tier of that, I don't think is quite there, but there's still a whole, whole lot to like. And yeah, it's a shame that this Look, got... it didn't reinvent the wheel, yeah. but it drove it in the right direction. Right? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And just, the, I mean, as I say, I, I always love sort of, you know, labyrinth plots like this. Um, and I was taken along for the ride. And when everything was revealed, for me, it just made it smarter. And I, I, from, from reading some of the blurbs and the reviews, the reveal of what was actually happening did not work for a lot of critics back then. But for me, I was like, oh, and that was it. And then, oh, and then, yeah. oh. And I, I always sort of like stuff like that. So I was reading the Peter Bradshaw review and he spent the first like couple of parts talking about the fact that Sir Ben Kingsley just got knighted and he decided to put Sir Ben Kingsley uh. in talking about it. It's like, I don't give a shit if he's going to use it. He's Sir Ben Kingsley, so he can use a title. But it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting that I feel like that was also something that might have like, because of that, some people can get take it. I don't know, like you know, when people say they don't mix their politics with thingy. It's like, mm. well, did that affect your review? Because that pissed you off. Yeah, I'm not. I would never. I would never uh, assert that mm. was the case. But it's just weird. I think it's weird. People get really funny about those things. Yeah. Rewatch it, Peter Badshaw, and tell me what you think. <laughs> Were the twists as surprising as I don't know why I'm thinking? I think because we just mentioned Robert Rodriguez. Did we we didn't review this on the podcast, Hypnotic? No, we did not. No. Because it's a bad movie. That was, no, was it's that... great. Oh, gosh. I didn't see it. It's uh, great. Don't listen to him while it's great. It's a two star movie. I'm sorry. No, it's great. It is Are not we great. Have to do no. a big Please, 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 I yeah, should probably not do the Robert Rodriguez interview. There's no way that you saw any of that coming. Could have. That's why I loved it. Never in a million years could I have guessed that was what was going on in that movie. Anyways, this is, sorry, this wasn't a review of Hypnotic. Um, so yeah, do we do a conclusion for Be Kind Rewind or do we? In conclusion, it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is safest for you. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It makes a difference. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at Fade to Black Pod on Twitter. I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. Oh, I maybe I should plug. I was on um, two podcasts this week that you can listen to. Uh, screen time with Ali Plum, where we talk about all the Barbenheimer and the summer stuff, and also a trip to the movies with Alex Zane, where I was asked to pick my perfect night at the movies, mm-hmm. and I tried. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everyone, if you don't like what I said, because I had some weird opinions. So. There we go. You with opinions? I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Uh, I absolutely believe it. I, I am at Amon Woman on Twitter, Instagram, threads, and probably some other places as well. Mum's net. <laughs> yes. Why not? Um, he's, it's, he's a mum woman. <laughs> a mum war mum. Oh, God. That's probably, oh, that's God, probably I'm what Otter. Dad. I should be on dad's net. <laughs> that's, that's probably what Otter has noted it down as. Uh, yeah. it never gets my name right. It's insane. Why aren't you yeah. on Tumblr? I'm just saying. If you're going to be on all the social media apps, why aren't you on... Asking am I on my <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm saying. Is, is Tumblr still going? Are you yes, on... Still Pen- going. Are you on Penguin chat? <laughs>
This is such disrespect to Tumblr. Tumblr. <laughs> okay, I'm on. Uh, I'm at, an, at Hannah and Esplint on uh, Instagram and Letterboxd. <laughs> Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. Mm-hmm.